This is Maureen Painter and I am here joined by Toby Edelman and Cinnamon St. John from the Center for Medicare Advocacy. We're gonna talk about the past year as well as what we're looking at in this next year coming, um, where we've seen some success and where there might still be some challenges that we need to continue to have energy around and try to move our positions forward on and look at how we can continue to collaborate through advocacy agencies in order to have the best outcomes for the individuals that we all serve. So I wanna introduce both of you, if you wanna give a little background, um, Toby. Okay, thank you, Mairead. Wonderful to be with you. Um, my name is Toby Edelman. I'm a senior policy attorney at the Center for Medicare Advocacy in the Washington, D.C. office. Hello, I'm Cinnamon St. John. I'm the Chiplin Medicare and Health Policy Fellow at the Center for Medicare Advocacy, also in Washington, D.C. And Mairead, thank you so much for having us today. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. So, you know, you guys have joined me a few times before. I'm always um, thrilled to have you here with me so that we can just have these conversations, these really important conversations about what's happening in our long-term care industry and how we work and partner to see the best solutions move forward. So I don't know, what do we wanna talk about related to last year? What happened? Where did we land? Um, and do you have any input on that? Well, I'll let Toby jump in in a second, but I'd like to take a second just to kind of ground us on where we're at, because while it's been two years and a long two years and a roller coaster of a two years, you know, we're still at a place where Omicron is really has this country, you know, has a hold on this country. I was looking online at the CDC and the community transmission levels throughout the nation for every single county in the nation is 99.6%. So 99.6% of the counties throughout the United States are in a high transmission level. It's the highest you can get. So we are at a moment where, yes, we're gonna look back and see what's being done, but we certainly have a lot of work ahead of us. I think for me right now, the most important thing that I wanna make sure we do is we have had high transmission rates before and we've seen how we were able to respond and what went well and where we had some challenges and just to make sure that we don't repeat some of the things that we did over the past two years where we didn't see the success in what we were doing and to learn from even that that little bit of history that we have in order to have better outcomes for the individuals we serve well the most important thing we learned for residents was that the vaccinations did work and when residents were vaccinated rates of COVID went down dramatically, dramatically across the country. But we also know that vaccines don't last forever and people need boosters. And so we've got to get boosters to the residents and of course to staff. Staff need to be vaccinated and boosted as well. Absolutely. And, and so when we look at what those rates are in the country, uh, right now, 80% of the staff in nursing homes are vaccinated around the nation and 87% of the residents are vaccinated. But what I find really interesting is when we look at like cases and death toll in nursing homes, the cases are approximately 50-50, 51% of the residents having had COVID and 49% of staff. But when you look at the death toll, and I know I think we've talked about this before, but I checked it again this morning, the death toll is 98% residents 
and 2% staff, actually like 98.4 and 1.6. So the people who are truly impacted by this are the residents at the end of the day. And I think it's so important just to keep the individual in mind because we talk about these big numbers, you know, 1.5 million cases of COVID in the nation throughout, you know, the totality of the pandemic, but it's the individual, the individual with a family, with friends, with a life, with a history that's being impacted. So Cinnamon, with that data, and I don't know if you have it at your fingertips, but one thing that would be interesting for me to, to know, you know, jumping off of Toby's point is yeah. once residents started to receive the vaccination, right? And so for us here in Connecticut, you're vaccinated, but to be fully vaccinated, it includes the booster. And so we're really mm -hmm. encouraging people to receive that booster. We have seen a high rate of transmission related mm -hmm. to COVID just recently and Omicron, but we're not seeing the rate of impact of people passing away if they are vaccinated. And so to me, that's the big, biggest success in all of this, that no, the virus is not going away. We are seeing more variants, but we've seen the success in vaccination and that it's becoming, you know, we don't want to turn a blind eye to it, of course, but even the residents have said they're not as nervous. The ones that um, are boosters are saying, you know, yes, they understand it's in the building, um, there's still anxiety and some um, worry about it, but people are getting, I would say, more like a significant cold flu versus feeling like they need to go to the hospital. So for me, that in itself over the past year, making that gain and seeing waves come is a huge success. I, I totally agree with you. You know, I think two points on that. One is, you know, how do we get that extra, that last 13%? of our residents in nursing homes vaccinated, right? Because like you're saying, if you're vaccinated, the chances of dying or having very severe reactions are reduced. Um, so one, how do we get that 13%? But two, I think it is important to keep in mind that there are things we don't know about it. And what we do know about Omicron is that it tends to exacerbate issues for people who have pre-existing conditions. You know, for example, if you have diabetes, you know, it can really impact that that disease within your body. So, you know, there's the there's this balancing act of Omicron and its impact on the body, and then Omicron and how it impacts these these diseases that you have, you know, these preconditions. And in our long-term care communities, we have more individuals who are experiencing chronic conditions that mm -hmm. could right be impacted. Um, as far as the last percentage of people, one of the things that we have seen here related to that number is how fluid it is because of the short-term rehab or changes in census. So every time the number bumps up, what happens is people leave or other people come in. And for the individuals coming from the community, many have been isolating, they're in their homes, their apartments. And so they haven't felt the need to get maybe vaccinated. That's why we're really encouraging people, even if you are, um, if you don't feel you might need to be around other people. There may be a time when you do or at the hospital, you're um, receiving care, doctor's appointments. So encouraging them to also get vaccinated and boosted. But that's why we have seen here at least that number be so fluid is related to the short-term rehab and the staffing changes. So the base core staff, um, it seems like mo many of them are vaccinated and we're really again encouraging the boosting we're not seeing as much of a people are, don't seem to be as receptive 
to the booster because they figure they've either had COVID or um, mm -hmm. they've already been vaccinated. But that change in staff and that change in residents, how, how we account for that in that number has been a little challenging. And this is why I love talking to you, Maraid, because I learn <laughs> things all the time. <laughs> Same Thank here. you for your wealth of knowledge. <laughs> it's mutual. It's mutual. <laughs> yeah, the other thing I think we learned from the last two years is that residents really do need to see their families and their loved ones and their friends. And uh, there was a, a really troubling article from the Associated Press that came up with the term that I find a little offensive, but their term was excess deaths. The excess deaths in nursing homes from March to November 2020 was 40,000 on top of the 90,000 at that point COVID deaths. And what we realized is that the social isolation of residents has been horrible for them. And the decline in residents physically and mentally from not seeing their loved ones has been terrible. We can't let that happen again either. That's something we know about, and we've got to make sure that people can see their relatives. To that point, Toby, it's not even just, right? We say just social and emotional needs, which is yeah. huge. Yeah. But I know here in Connecticut, we are at a critical point related to staffing and the access to staff and the individuals living and choosing to receive their long-term services and supports in our long-term care communities they have care needs that can't go unmet. And staff are working Absolutely. incredibly hard. But mm -hmm. to spend 45 minutes or an hour helping someone finish a meal, um, making sure that they have the opportunity to put a pillow under them in a certain way, those are things that their essential supports, um, essential mm -hmm. caregivers, essential supports. And when we talk about essential caregivers, we're not talking about staff in the building. We're talking about the individuals in a person's life that they identify as essential to them in order to live their highest quality of life and have the best day. And for me, that was one thing I think I learned during the pandemic that I, I had an idea of prior to, you know, there was always right. a few family members that came in and provided some support and you knew they were there. I don't think I had any idea about how much they supported the buffered some of the gaps that we were seeing in staffing. And that's why staffing challenges became so prevalent um, and were so eye-opening during that period of time and continue to be. That's I think right now in Connecticut, staffing issues um, and care issues are a more concerning to me than the COVID. I mean, COVID is obviously an issue. We don't want it in our nursing homes and we want to ensure that they're using good infection um, prevention measures to keep it out. But having the staff to do that and to care for people is critical. It's a very hands-on world. People need, need direct care. They need people there in person doing things and helping them. Yeah. And, and, and when you look at just like the percentage of older adults in nursing homes that potentially have some sort of cognitive impairment issues, that essential caregiver, that person that's been in your life knows you and can read beyond maybe your inability to verbalize what you need. You know, that person who really kind of knows you like that second glove needs to have access because that really will help the individual live and thrive in a challenging environment. Absolutely. But if we can talk about where I'm thinking is this past year, 
the legislation that's come out of Connecticut has been incredible. And when we look and compare legislation on a state level from Connecticut state level to the federal level, it's imbalanced. You know, I, I, I really do wish the nation would take its cue from all of this wonderful legislation that has been passed in Connecticut this past year. I don't know, Mairead, if you want to talk about it, but, you know, everything from the essential support person bill, strengthen, strengthening the voice of the resident count and family councils, um, in, increasing minimum staffing. And I know this does dovetail with what you were talking about with staffing issues, but increasing, you know, the, the direct care hours per resident per day to three hours from 1.9. Um, and also kind of interesting, the, the strengthening the Bill of Rights Act and also allowing technology in a residence room. So, I mean, there's just, and, and I know I'm only kind of scratching the surface, but it's been amazing. It was amazing. And I, I have to give a lot of credit to our legislative body who really listened to residents and family members directly. They received those calls, they responded, they were reaching out to the governor's office. In our state agencies, we had an amazing response. And I, I credit that to the voice and the stories that were shared from residents and family members. We have an incredibly active body of residents and um, loved ones. I shouldn't say just family members because many are friends as well. That to this day, make sure that they're reaching out, calling, sharing those stories, because that's what makes it real for legislators, right? When they're looking at what's a priority, what bills are they going to spend their time on? Um, where do they put their energy? It's the people they serve and understanding that even in our long-term care communities, these are still members of our greater community. They still vote, they still have a voice, and they still maintain their rights as U.S. citizens. And I think that's so important because so many people forget that when someone chooses a long-term care setting as the place where they receive those supports, right? They think, oh, well, they're, they're in the nursing home now. I have some incredibly, incredibly active um, individuals who, yes, they live in a nursing home, but they're gonna testify when a bill comes up and they wanna be active. We actually have a someone on our e-board now, our executive board of presidents of resident council, who used to be a state senator and he is very active. So, you know, um, I think that that group is only going to grow in its, in its powers and the way that it reaches out um, and moves things forward. I have one, talk a little bit about, talking about bills and legislation. Last time we all talked, we talked about uh, Build Back Better. And at this time, we thought it might be over the finish line. However, it's not. But um, there are still the nursing home provisions in place. There's things that you know we want to see stay in there and that we want to make sure, I think, like you're saying, nationally, our legislators understand related to staffing and the need for a federal staffing requirement for a daily rate for staffing. And what do you guys think it's going to take to get that across the finish line? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we knew. I know they all wish we knew. Well, regarding what it takes to get it across the finish line, I think if we were able to mobilize on a national level, individuals, you know, constituents within each state who really contacted their senators to get their voices heard, I think that would be an important 
important push, especially, you know, in West Virginia or places like that where maybe there's a little bit of a sticking point. You know, we need mass mobilization. The question is, how? How are we going to get that grassroots constituent movement? Because, you know, like you said, Maraid, it really is about the individual and it's about the individual stories. It's not just, you know, people in Texas calling people, you know, senators in West Virginia saying, please pass, build back better. You know, it is the residents of the state expressing their personal stories. And I think it's challenging right now because, you know, honestly, it, it feels, a, you know, I, I think I said in another podcast that I was the pessimist to your optimist. <laughs> so, so, so that's, you know, so temper it with that, understanding that. But, you know, it, it was challenging because when we saw the language that, you know, came out of the House with mm-hmm. what the provisions for Build Back Better would be versus, you know, how it was changed after it came out of the Senate, you know, this, removing the the part of the provision for nurse staffing that, you know, yes, we're going to have to have a survey to figure out where we're at now with what is required in nursing homes. You know, how much, how much care, how much, you know, how much hours per resident per day should each individual get? You know, we will do that if build back, if these provisions stay and build back better and build back better passes and everything. But what they took out was the fact that we needed to implement those recommendations. And so it will be great to have the data, but the challenge is, are we really going to move the needle forward? How do we get that crucial needle move forward? Because there's a lot of industry pushback and, you know, I'm not sure how to get, how to get around that. Toby, what do you think? Well, I, I agree completely. Um, I think one strategy those of us in Washington might try to use is to work with the agency that's responsible for nursing homes and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and see if we can encourage them to do some of these things through regulations, through guidance documents. One of the provisions that I've always been concerned about in the Build Back Better Act is the requirement that CMS look at the, the survey process and the enforcement system and make sure that it's accurately identifying problems and requiring appropriate enforcement action. Um, And that doesn't necessarily need legislation to happen. It can be done administratively. And so we might try to work uh, with the agency more than we have in the past Mm -hmm. even to say, this is important, you need to do this. But, But there really is no substitute for getting the people who are directly affected communicating with their legislators because that's that's who they want to hear from. And I'm in DC and I don't have any representation in Congress. <laughs> so I wrote to several senators last week one evening saying, please uh, deal with this issue because I, I don't have any representation. So I am asking you to do this, but really they're not they're not going to listen to me because I'm not their constituent. So that's the most important thing. People need to get involved and and stay involved. Yeah. And I think we've seen more involvement than uh, than at least I have in my history of working in this field. Um, We had the family members that came together from every state in a grassroots way, which I thought was incredible to put together the book um, protecting, you know, the protected people to death. And we know that the guidance that was put in place um, from CMS was to protect residents from COVID, not totally understanding 
the other impacts related to social interaction. And so I know that those books were sent out to all members of Congress and the Senate. And I think people should call and, and reflect on that. My frustration with the survey and saying, let's do another survey to see what's needed. We've done a survey. We've known that 4.1 was the result of a survey years ago that we've used to advocate. What was it? What's it? 20 years ago. 20, 20 years ago, we've been saying this and we've seen okay. nothing from that survey. So we're going to do another survey. That to me is a little frustrating. This is what kills me. You know, we call this the gold standard, right? 4.1 hours per resident per day established 20 years ago. And I'm sorry for being cheesy, but I'm going to go here. Instead of the gold standard, it's now the old standard. You know, like it. it's, it's two, it's like two it. decades old. <laughs> so, yes, okay. But the thing is, is we knew this 20 years ago, and like you said, we didn't do anything. We haven't done anything about it. So yeah. that's the point. Are we going to repeat history? And, and it's not like care issues have gotten better. You know, people have higher levels of need. They've stayed in the community for a longer period of time. Right. By the time they're going to a nursing home, in many cases, the care they need is more significant. Absolutely. Yeah. They've had more choices now than they had 20 years ago. We have a whole industry of assisted living that was not very developed 20 years ago. More people are going home. People can go home and get home care services. Now, there are problems with home care. Uh, we don't want to say that that's a perfect situation, but it is an option for people, and it's an option people are choosing. So there's no question that the people in nursing homes need more care. They're coming out of the hospitals more quickly, more and more quickly. Yeah. Toby, since I'd love to get your perspective. Since you saw this, you know, firsthand, what, what the heck? Why, why aren't we able to get more movement on this? Um, I think industry opposition is is a main point. And now they say they just don't have enough staff at all. So how could we possibly uh, expect more staff when they can't even retain the staff that they had in the past? So well, that's major opposition. There's also they worry haven't about had paying. staff for 40 years. I understand <laughs> that. There's also concern that we can't pay for it. And a consumer voice, which used to be called the National Citizens Coalition for Nursing Home Reform, uh, it did some work, and it was really powerful, and we've been talking about redoing it, the high cost of poor care. How much does it cost when we have avoidable pressure ulcers, when we have avoidable incontinence? We had lots of research studies showing how much money it is spent because we're trying to fix things that went wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong. Uh, they should not have gone wrong with better care. And I think we need to redo that work and say, okay, you think we can't afford staff? We can't afford not to have staff. We have all this hospitalization. We have all these infections that should never have happened. We have, you know, falls, all kinds of things that would not happen with better staffed facilities and it would save money. So we, we need to get back to that. Okay, Remind so I have a question for you two. Sorry, so I have a question oh, no. for the two of you. We were we did a webinar in December, which was really a great webinar, sent, you know, Center for Medicare Advocacy with Maraid, and a woman called in saying, "All right, but we can't get people. Even if we've increased the hourly rate, we're still, you know, competing with a, you know, a." a company down the road, like a retail company, you know, how are we going, how are we going to get this? So in all seriousness, like, 
what does it take? Is it just increasing wages? How do we get more staff? How do we get this to be a desirable exactly. job? Honoring the people who do this work, showing mm -hmm. a career ladder, right? Mm -hmm. I think we've done away with that career ladder where people um, were incentivized to come in maybe at a CNA level and then move up, become an LPN, then go for their RN, and or to become sort of the lead CNA and honoring that knowledge base um, and seeing it in a respected way, having them attend care plan meetings, having them be sort of the person that knows the individuals they're caring for. I think also the we have to look at the how physically demanding these mm -hmm. jobs can be and the toll they take on someone's body physically. Um, there are a lot of ways that we could use technology better and devices that could be put in that would assist the individuals doing this type of work. For instance, um, a ceiling lift where it could be in every resident's room. We're not waiting for a Hoyer lift. You don't need two people. You could let someone sit independently in the bathroom um, and use the bathroom. You wouldn't have to stand there and one, it's dignity. The person could sit there privately. Um, they could hover in front of the sink and brush their teeth if assessed that it's safe for them to do that. One, it would cut down on falls immensely. It would cut down on the cost of falls. It would cut down on back injuries. It would allow for independence, autonomy, and more staff time. But they're expensive. And so when I think when owners receive funding, they want to put it into the things of their buildings they have to do, like the floors, the ceilings, um, generators, where I believe general cost of owning a business should pay for those things. And that extra funds should go into things that directly support resident independence and staff ability to, to care for them. That's when I think we'll start to see a change, when those things start to become the priority. So if we paid staff higher wages appropriate to the importance of their job and the, the skills and knowledge they need to have and benefits, people need benefits. Yeah, you, you can't, you know, you can, if you can't afford to stay home, you won't get paid if you're not at work and you have no sick leave, you're going to come into work sick. This makes no sense. This is craziness. So we need, we need better wages and benefits, more respect. There are facilities that allow aides to schedule their own time. They figure it out. They work it out. They're smart people. They can do this. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we want to have better training for people. Make this a job that is respected. And, and don't just you know, bring in pizza once a month. That's not good enough. We need to really show that they are respected and treated with respect. Um, and show the teaming. Like, I also believe in the universal worker. Um, where if you if we created units, one smaller homes, I would like to see more facilities smaller scattered throughout the state versus large facilities so that people can live in the communities they're from. They're cared for by people who live in the communities they're from, often knowing them. And if you have a universal worker, would so that for people who don't know what that is, that would be someone who is a licensed CNA but cares for fewer people, but does everything for them. Helps them in having their room look the way they want it to look, changes their sheets, um, cleans up the room, does the laundry. Maybe there's a washer and dryer on the unit and the resident goes down to you know, a room where there's a kitchen, a living room, and then a laundry room where that's part of 
their daily routine. For many residents, I think they would actually enjoy being able to sit and fold their laundry, talk to each other. Um, we saw a lot of success with that. Again, late 90s, early 2000s, when we still had funds and the ability to try things. The universal caregiver, that consistency for people, um, that handoff, you have less people interacting with individuals throughout the day. We saw a lot of success with that. I did a report uh, that was released in 2021 called Geography is Not Destiny, essentially about how to help save the lives of What was it called, Cinnamon? That was Geography is Not Destiny. Geography is, is Not Destiny. Okay. And, and so part of that report is where I interviewed nursing home administrators from around the nation, a handful of them. But I took areas where one one geographic region where I interviewed someone who had a, a top performing nursing home and an, a person who had one of the, the least performing nursing homes as far as being able to keep COVID out of the facility. Because, you know, we talk a lot about community transmission and is it possible to still keep a nursing home safe? But one thing that I noticed in the facilities that were most successful at keeping COVID out were the nursing home administrators who created a culture for the people who worked there. You know, they really had an open line of communication. They were very empathetic. They tried to figure out how, like you were talking about, how, how can you create a schedule, Toby, around, you know, the person's life, really looking at each staff member and asking, what, what complications do you have in your life? What is your family situation like? So they could really tailor a program that would allow safety first, but also staff first. So I think you have to know your, important. you have to have been there. You have to know your team, right? So if you have a new coach, I always go back to sort of the, the sports um, analogy. So if you have a new coach every six months, they never <laughs> yeah. get to know their team. Right and the strengths of the players. And every player has a different strength in where they're gonna see success and how they can partner to have a successful team. Teams that are most successful do not have a constant rotation in their coaching staff. And so what we see in our long-term care communities, and I'm really fortunate here that Connecticut's a small state. And so I, I know a lot of the administrators, we have, you know, we have some really, really good long-term care communities here in our state. We have some that struggle and some owners where I have challenges, but overall we see a lot of dedication, but we're also seeing a great deal of movement. And so when someone, some frontline staff members don't see someone totally buying in to the building, planning on being there long-term, you want to have belief in your captain, in the person, you know, yeah. making your ship move. And when you don't have that, we've lost sort of that dedication of the team, I think, in being able to count on that person leading them. Um, and that's where we need the consistency in management to know people's strengths, to be able to hone in on those strengths, and to be able to feel supported. If you don't know your team and what their needs are, maybe you have a CNA that would pick up an extra shift on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but can't the other nights because they have their kids or they're taking a class because they're trying um, to improve their situation or get, provide, you know, another level of education. Not knowing that and people not feeling valued in that way, I think is a lot of the reason why we see this industry 
challenge when it comes to staffing. People want to feel valued and known for who they are, not just filling a gap on a sheet for staffing. A hundred percent everything you said, but at another layer, then we have to get to ownership. And Toby's done a ton of work about this. But, you know, some of those administrators I interviewed, they weren't able to make the decisions. The decision was coming from corporate. So, you know, each resident was just a line on an Excel sheet. They didn't really yeah. know, or each staff member. So when you have this very sterilized environment where you're making these decisions for a bunch of homes, you know, facilities at one time, you're going to lose so much of that. And I know, Toby, this has been a passion of yours. Well, I'm very concerned about it, about the changing ownership ownership situation in nursing homes, because ownership has a lot to do with what happens. If the administrators don't have the authority to say, I need another nurse, I need another aide on this shift, and the, and the uh the corporate people are telling them, no, you know, this is your budget and you come within this budget and, you know, your uh, your bonus depends on having higher occupancy as opposed to providing better care. That's a real problem. And one of the big problems we've seen, and I was just reading an article this morning about it, like what is the future? What does the future hold? The trade press had an article and one of the things they talk about is private equity coming in and buying up these facilities more than ever. And we don't really know who these companies are because we talk to families and some of them have been pretty good sleuths and they figure out who's behind the name, but they'll find out that it's a private equity firm that does not appear anywhere on any paperwork that they've signed with the facility. But the private equity, although it's hard to know really how to describe it, I mean, it's a type of private financing. I think the biggest issue for private equity really is what they do once they take over of a nursing home chain. Absolutely. And we had a really frightening example with Manor Care taken over by the Carlisle Group. And what they what they do is what private equity does is sell off pieces of the company quickly. They sell off pieces and in five years they've sold off everything and they're done. What Carlisle did was sell Manor Care's real estate to a real estate investment trust. Manicare used to own that property. They didn't pay themselves rent. Suddenly they were paying rent to a real estate investment trust that kept raising the rent and finally forced the company into bankruptcy. That's what they did with private equity ownership. And so it's there are studies showing that they immediately cut staff, increase antipsychotic drugs, really frightening things happening. And there's very little knowledge about this. And something I think it's hard for advocates like us to really grapple with or understand, but we need to make more of an effort to try to understand these ownership issues and how to get the state, the states and federal government having more control over who the owners are, or at least what they do with the money once they get it. Absolutely. That issue of transparency has come up a great deal. It's something that we're talking about this legislative session here in Connecticut. You know, we don't want anyone not to be able to do business, right? If someone wants to come in and run a good business, if someone wants to come in and have a successful company, I'm all for it. But it's having that transparency and understanding who's here, what's their history? How have they done business before if they've worked in long-term care and have there been issues in other states? So for me, really understanding if there's somebody coming in 
what's happened in other states. I may reach out to another state ombudsman and say, hey, have you, I, this company's been in your state. What was your experience with them? Um, were there any challenges? And that has been helpful, but I think nationally, just like with staffing, we need to set standards in what is the what are our priorities and what's acceptable to us for an owner and care and having some of that transparency exposed. I think I think it's it's a difficult issue, but it's really important. And the other part of it is saying, and some states have now passed laws about this, you must spend X percentage of the reimbursement you get on care, on care, on direct care. Uh, New York has a law that the nursing homes just challenged in court. Mm-hmm. And they said, if this, if these rules, 70 percent is what the what the budget bill says, 70 percent has to be spent on care, including 40 percent on direct care. The nursing homes in this lawsuit say, if you did this, if this had been in effect in 2019, we would have had to pay back over eight hundred million dollars. Like, wait a minute, where where were you spending the money? Oh, well, there are two provisions. They don't like that one, and they don't like the limitation on 5% profit. So those two provisions, they've challenged, and that's what they say, over $840 million, they would have had to pay back. So where did that money go? What exactly. did you spend it on if you didn't spend it on care? And how much were your profits? Very troubling. Well, when we look into the new year, I think having a focus on transparency and a focus on accountability. Those two need to happen. Both. <laughs> right. And thankfully, I'm very happy that those are two things on um, my legislative agenda and many of the advocates here in Connecticut this session. So that's... The, the goal of this project is really to formalize a partnership between the Center for Medicare Advocacy and the Connecticut Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program to improve health literacy, access to Medicare covered quality of care, and really age-friendly care in Connecticut nursing homes. Um, and, and this is really exciting because I think ultimately it will be a synergistic project because it, if we also strengthen the relationship with resident councils, long-term care ombudsman program, and, and the Center for Medicare Advocacy, we have really a, a trifecta of the voices on the ground, the, the, the overseeing program, and, and the legal side where we can provide knowledge and resources as necessary. So over the year, we are going to be doing assessment surveys with the resident councils to really try to understand gaps of knowledge and gaps of services so that we could provide webinars and education materials to help fill those gaps and and then partner with the long-term care ombudsman to really figure out how to target these areas and then of course we're going to have podcast updates so everyone can see how this project is rolling along but this is very exciting and we are thrilled Mairead that you've agreed to partner with us with us on this. Well thank you so much for um you know, asking and this collaboration, I think is so important because these are things that we are all working on, right? We have resident councils working on things. My office continues to work on building resident and family councils and strengthening them, having access to information from you all. And then with you working independently, we're strong. We can do a lot, but together, I think we're going to be able to create a a great strength and move things forward in a way that would have taken us much longer if we weren't partnering. Um, So I'm really excited to see what we're able to come up with over the next year. 
I, I was so excited. And also, I mean, when you think about what's happening legislatively in the state, you know, you have this act strengthening the voice of residents and family councils. So I just feel like we're, we're, we're trying to approach this angle on so many levels that hopefully we can really collectively just push the needle forward to ensure that residents and nursing homes have everything they need to thrive. Always, always an amazing long-term care discussion um, with you both. I want to thank you both for being here with me today. Um, I look forward, you know, maybe we even do these quarterly just to keep people updated on on what's happening related to long-term care um, here in Connecticut and nationally, um, really showing that you have to have both. So thank you both for being here. Uh, For our listeners, please, if you have questions related to your Medicare, your long-term care, please reach out to the Center for Medicare Advocacy. Um, You can look up their website, contact them by phone. They have people that regularly answer the phone. I don't know if Cinnamon, do one of you want to share their, your phone number? Phone number is 860-456-7790. Wonderful. So thank you all for joining me today. I look forward to having you join me again on future podcasts. This is your care, your rights, your voice. Read Painter and continue to listen wherever you listen to your podcasts.